Welcome to Ask the Expert. This is a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event and we'll post it on the Sugar Science site YouTube channel shortly after the presentation. If you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. And today we have as our guest, Dr. Rob Screeton. He's coming to us uh, from, as he's an associate professor and he's coming from us from the University of Toronto. And his research really focuses on finding cures for type one and type two diabetes. From a biological perspective, we're interested in understanding how human cells respond to extracellular cues to maintain and ensure their function and survival is what he's focused on. And they're using islet biology, genomics, cell-based screening, and techniques that really explore mitochondrial dynamics and integrity. So welcome, Rob. Thank you so much um, for joining us today. Thanks you. Thank you for the invitation. Excited to be here. Great. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of your sort of your career path and what excites you most about the research you're working on right now? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, career path was a PhD at McGill uh, in Montreal in cancer biology and then two postdocs because I needed more time than just one postdoc in California and San Diego. Um, first studying cell death, cell adhesion, and how that affects cell death decisions. And then moved to the Salk Institute, where I did a second postdoc in uh, essentially in signal transduction and gene regulation. And the uh, RNAi screen that our colleagues of ours did, um, well, I guess that was an overexpression screen. Overexpression screen with um, folks at Novartis across the way in San Diego. Um, we found a pathway that uh, regulates blood sugar levels. So I became a diabetes researcher after being cancer researcher throughout my, all my training. So um, first job back in Canada, 2005 in Ottawa, the Children's Hospital, and then recruited back to Toronto where I started um, high school, et cetera, um, in 2015. So I've been here back for six years. Fantastic. Um, and so you have a couple of slides, you know, um, and what are you going to talk about uh, with us today? What are you going to share with us today? Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you I got a whole lot of slides actually, so I'm gonna go through them very quickly and literally just point to specific things on each slide that I want to uh, try to nail home. I'm gonna talk to you about um, a big picture question of can we uh, get a human beta cell to regenerate? Right. Um, is it possible? Um, and uh, I'm just seeing if I can load up this. Uh, presentation here and um, our work in that regard and what people in the field have been doing um, uh, to try to try to get human beta cells to uh, proliferate. Fantastic. Take it away. Can you see, can you see that? Yeah, it looks great. Beautiful image. Okay, perfect. Okay. So let me see if I can work through here. So I'm going to, this is the overview. I'm going to talk about the problem of type one, um, which uh, may be very familiar to this audience. Um, I'm going to talk about two approaches that uh, the field has really taken to try to get uh, human beta cells to uh, regenerate chemical biology approaches and functional genomic approaches. Um, I'm gonna talk to you about the pitfalls of, of both mm -hmm. and why we like the functional genomic approach. And then I'm gonna talk to you about some RNAi screens that we've been doing to try to identify new targets to try to get a human beta cell to regenerate. So type 1 diabetes, um, autoimmune-mediated destruction of beta cells, uh, loss of beta cells appears to be permanent, and the treatment, which has been the treatment for nearly uh, 100 years now, since the discovery of insulin 100 years ago right here in Toronto, has been daily insulin injections. And 
essentially a cure is going to require stopping the autoimmune mediated attack on the beta cells and then restoring them. And so really the, the current treatment options beside insulin have been uh, re replacement based. One is uh, islet transplantation made famous in Edmonton. And then um, more recently, tons and tons of excitement in the field about the possibility of using human embryonic stem cell derived cells to coax down the beta cell lineage. There've been some ongoing issues that rec very recent exciting data may, uh, may help to address is that the insulin positive cells typically respond poorly to glucose and can in many cases remain polyhormonal. And you'll still have to encapsulate these because the risk of immune rejection is still there. So the, the blue sky approach, and this is where my lab sort of um, started thinking about this about 10 years ago, is can we just give a pill to someone who has uh, type one and get their residual beta cells to regenerate? So the goal is induced proliferation of patients' own cells and not to replace them with exogenous cells. And potential for this sort of excitement around this was the result that the uh, medalists living for type one, living with type one for over 50 years, retained some functional beta cell mass. The problem is, is that adult beta cells have a very low replicative potential. And many of you are probably familiar with this graph where at about two years old, this small peak in proliferation is back down to almost baseline levels. So this is over on the y-axis, you can see there's 1% of proliferating cells, very low replicative potential. So this opportunity that there's evidence in a physiological condition, one physiological condition in which you can see an adult beta cell proliferating, and that comes from human pregnancy, that in this older study, about 1.4-fold increase in, in beta cell area, and twofold increase in a uh, uh, number of proliferating cells. So this idea that it could be possible to reverse this permanent quiescent state um, is, is uh, what gives us hope that we might be able to do this. So our background is in doing large scale genomic screens, typically using RNAi to silence genes and the look at effects on target cells. And this is what we do. We stain uh, dissociated uh, human islet cells here in this case is for C peptide. And then we look for rare proliferating cells after we've manipulated them with uh, shRNA. So silencing genes and seeing whether or not we can reverse what appears to be this permanent quiescence. And I'm showing you over here, if you look at the percentage of uh, proliferating cells that stained with a proliferative marker EDU, you can see that essentially three, six, 10, 15 days in culture, none of the beta cells are proliferating. So a, an adult human beta cell is very uh, 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 reluctant to enter the cell cycle. So I mentioned chemical biology and functional genomics, so I'm just gonna describe a, in a few slides um, essentially what people in the field have been doing here. So ESL technology uh, I've mentioned, chemical biology screens are very large scale screens looking for a small molecule that will reverse uh, beta cell um, quiescence. And essentially the, the attractive nature of the chemical biology screen, it's a fast road to a compound. The goal is translational. The problem is the target is often unknown and that can lead to fairly dramatic off-target effects. And in, in our view, one small molecule uh, may be insufficient to achieve such a major cell state change from quiescence to proliferation. And I'm gonna touch on that later. So there's been a number of small molecules that have been reported to stimulate uh, human beta cell proliferation. Um, many of them targeting uh, uh, the protein kinase DIRK1A, a principal one that you may have heard of is uh, called harmine. The problem with the chemical biology screens in general, and I'm summarizing a lot of work here, is that 
typically they have, um, the small molecules will have off-target effects. And harmine is not just a DIRK1A inhibitor. It, it in fact inhibits uh, 10 or more human protein kinases as well as non-protein kinase substrates. And if you look at the human kinome dendrogram here, you can see circled in these various colors or where the targets of harmine sit. So they can be uh, rather diverse targets with potentially serious off-target effects. So we like to think of harmine as a, as a pan kinase inhibitor. And if you look at other um, family members, um, here's another one called CC401 from Tristan Anas' lab. And you can see that CC401 inhibits over 30 kinases to more than 99% of its activity. So they're not particularly specific um, compounds. And one of the challenges has been is that genetic validation of the proposed targets hasn't been done. And so there's this really now old review in nature cell biology, essentially laying the landwork, the groundwork for what is an acceptable level of genetic proof that you've got a target of interest. And what you need to do is generate an SHRNA resistant cDNA and rescue the effect of an RNAi and recover the control phenotype. And this is the technical details of how you do that. So because that hasn't been done, the question is, what do we do now? Um, the problem is beta cell quiescence is established early in life. It's really an evolutionary problem. And that's how we think about it. The number of beta cells that you have is the number that you have to have. And these cells are amongst the oldest cells in the body. Um, recent exciting data from the Hetzer lab at the Salk Institute has shown that. So there must be multiple redundant mechanisms to prevent inappropriate cell growth. And we, we rationalize that as you need to avoid insulinomas at all costs because too little insulin is, uh, gives you diabetes, but too much insulin can kill you. And we also want to avoid excessive uh, secretion, which is contentious, but I think it's a strong point. So establishing and maintaining this program must be genetically controlled. So we move into the genetic approach, which clearly by now you probably can tell I favor um, that the only road really to understanding the underlying biology of a system is to, to do genetics. So the goal really is basic science. It's not primarily translational. The question is, how does this work? But there is translational upside because you're selecting the correct target to then do a chemical biology screen to manipulate in the direction in which you desire. There are caveats. It's not perfect. There are false positives and false negatives. False positives, um, I mentioned one strategy to deal with is you use genetic rescue, and I'll show you an example of that. So the, the third part of this little presentation is essentially just detailing what we've done recently um, with some RNAi screens to identify new pathways that we believe we can target to reverse beta cell quiescence. So I showed you these data earlier, and I showed you this a um, little schematic of the cell cycle here where most human beta cells have exited the cell cycle into a quiescent state. And we wanna silence genes and see if we can reverse this process. And we've done a whole series of um, different uh, types of screens uh, looking for beta cell proliferation uh, genes, genes that regulate beta cell survival, as well as maturation. And I'm gonna talk very briefly about maturation at the end and hopefully there's some questions about that. So this is our protocol, I won't take you through it. We start with isolated islets from donors from all over the world. Um, these are our collaborators um, who kindly provide them. And we uh, generate lentiviral um, shRNAs. We purify um, uh, functional viral um, particles. 
we co-transfect or co-infect with these dissociated islet cells. We wait 10 days and in the presence of EDU, we do uh, high content imaging looking for beta cells here in, with C-peptide labeled um, that have taken up EDU to indicate that they've entered the cell cycle. And just so you're aware, we have the entire Sigma TRC1, 1.5 and two um, libraries. So we have 140,000 plasmids that have all been prepped and are in this robotic freezer. And if anyone's interested in doing silencing of their favorite pathway or gene set or subgenome set or even genome set, we sit down at this computer and we dial up whichever plasmids you want and uh, rearray them into 96 well plates. And there you have your plasmids and away you go. So this is just showing you that um, when you dissociate human islet cells, you actually get the proportion of cells that you would expect from alpha and delta or beta or others. This is the infectivity of these cells. They're highly infectable. You get 95 to 100% of the cells infected. And we spent three years on this one slide, essentially just the technology of how to infect a primary human beta cell and have the silencing be reproducible without toxicity. So that was a lot of work and that was published a few years ago. And the key thing is, is that you can actually do these experiments and the cells remain uh, glucose responsive and dispersing them or infecting them does not affect their biology. So we know that the system that we're using is not affecting the beta cells negatively. So we did a screen a number of years ago. And again, this is published, just showing you here that uh, cell cycle regulators P18 and P21 that when silenced both increased proliferation here and here, and that when we put back in these rescue constructs, so these shRNA resistant cDNAs, we once again restore uh, the baseline level of proliferation so that we know that um, P18 and P21 are, are as the um, Italians say, bona fide um, hits. So we then move to the major screen and this work is, uh, hopefully soon to be published, but this is unpublished. We wanted to silence a large set of genes. And so the gene set that we decided to look for was uh, um, silencing G-protein coupled receptors. These are seven transmembrane domain receptors. There's about 800 genes in our genome, um, approximately 4% of the human protein coding genome. And they detect literally everything. Uh, I won't detail that through you. It's on for you, it's on the slide. The interesting thing and what caught our eye is that one third of FDA approved drugs target GPCRs. So we thought if there's going to be something that can detect a signal and regulate proliferation and also be druggable, this is a really good attractive set of genes to go for. So this is the screen outline and I won't take you through all of the details, but essentially we targeted almost 900 genes. We had anywhere from one to 26 shRNAs in the library. And we went all the way down to find candidates and then uh, moved on to genetic rescue. And here's the donor um, uh, pancreata that we used. We needed to use two donors. We needed 450,000 uh, islet equivalents, um, essentially all of the um, islets in, in the entire human pancreas. So this is the, the um, data here from the screen. Each individual one of these dots is a different gene. Uh, this is uh, the gene that we picked on here, selected for further analysis called uh, GPR3. And this, along with other candidates, was validated um, in three screens using three independent donors monitoring the percentage of proliferation compared to our two controls, P21 and P18. 
And here's where um, GPR3 sits. So we have a number of interesting candidates, some of which are actually categorized as olfactory receptors. Um, and that's a whole different um, kettle of fish that I'm happy to talk about. So GPR3 cholerae, because of a couple of papers, it's uh, constitutively active, according to the literature, GS-coupled orphan receptor, which means it should be signaling through cyclic AMP. It seems to have cyclic AMP independent signaling properties. But this, these were the two papers that got us quite interested in both in the brain and in um, uh, meiotic uh, oocytes, GPR3 seems to be promoting cell cycle arrest, which is an, exactly the type of candidate we were looking for. And if you look at the alignment of where GPR3 sits in the uh, sort of relatedness of the G protein coupled receptors, it sits here amongst receptors for cannabinoids, lysophospholipids, and sphingosine 1-phosphate. And so it seems likely that GPR3 would be a lipid receptor. So the first thing we want to do is ask, well, can GPR6 and GPR12, its closest neighbors also um, silencing of those targets also promote proliferation. And it doesn't appear to be the case. It looks like GPR3 seems to be specifically involved. And as I said, oh, skipped over that. And as I said, um, when we silence GPR3, we see proliferation. And when we rescue it with a resistant construct, we restore baseline proliferation. So we know that GPR3 is a real hit. And then one of the constant problems in, in this area is donor to donor variation. So we wanted to just verify that um, silencing uh, P18 or P21 or GPR3 in 18 different donors gave the same result. So we know that silencing GPR3 is, is really uh, independent of, of donor uh, variability. So I'm not gonna take you through all the molecular details and believe me, there are a number of molecular details here, but this is the pathway that we identified in this recent story that I mentioned is, is soon to be published. Um, that GPR3 uh, regulates um, uh, CDK inhibitors that prevent cell cycle kinases from being active at the G1 to S porter. And this happens to run through a protein kinase called salt inducible kinase 2 that uh, in a strange coincidence, my lab has been working on for 15 years. So we had a lot of reagents and knowledge around SIC2. And when we overexpressed SIC2 um, in mice, so we had two founders, we see nice levels of overexpression around threefold. We can see a significant increase in the number of KI67 positive cells in the transgenic beta cell population. And this is quantitated here. Islet area appears to double and refed blood glucose appears to go down. And this is where we're really quite excited about this last piece of data that I'll show you, um, which is this. We anticipated given the doubling of islet area in these mice, that these mice would clear glucose faster in a glucose challenge, and they don't. They're not particularly um, uh, more glucose tolerant. So we did a little bit more analysis and we looked at sort of acute insulin uh, um, secretion results to uh, glucose. So two minutes and five minutes after injection of glucose, we can see not much difference between the wild type and transgenics. But when we injected arginine, so this is looking at plasma insulin here, and this is just blood glucose levels, we can see in the transgenic, the dotted line here, they secrete significantly more insulin than do um, the wild type mice. And this reminded me of this old paper um, in 1968 where these uh, authors looked at human fetal islet behaviors and found this, these older graphs are a little confusing, at least for me to look at, but on the top is blood glucose 
after injection of glucose. And on the right over here, same thing, blood glucose, but after the injection of amino acids. So remember here, we're comparing glucose and arginine. Here's glucose and amino acids in fetal human islets. And you can see in response to glucose, a small response, but in response to amino acid, a huge response and secreting insulin, suggesting that fetal islets are responsive to amino acids and not to glucose, and that this maturation takes place over time. Similar, um, our interpretation is that it's similar here, that these sick 2 positive proliferating beta cells in these transgenic mice have fetal-like immature properties. So sort of summarizing over 10 years of work from my lab, this is a pathway that is, I mentioned, we've been working on it for a long time. I won't talk about the details of it today, but sick 2 sits at the top of this pathway its activity appears to be restrained by GPR3. And when SIC2 um, can no longer be restrained, it can actually help to uh, reverse this process and promote uh, proliferation. So really the take homes from what I aimed to talk about today was that silencing P18, P21 and GPR3 can promote human beta cell proliferation. We would argue that redundant mechanisms um, uh, are necessary to prevent inappropriate beta cell expansion. So while there might be one accelerator, there are probably 12 breaks. Um, and we propose that a genetic approach is really critical to achieve the ultimate goal, which is on target targeting in a beta cell um, uh, gene or protein product. And that this um, proliferation that we achieve, should we achieve it, should be regulated. Um, we don't want to um, trigger unrestrained or neoplastic growth or unwanted side effects. So really the, the last bit of data that I showed you there that we're quite excited about is that we really do have two tasks now with regeneration. And this may not be new to everyone, but it, it's, it's changed the way we think about things a little bit recently. The, the first job is we have to get these cells back into the cell cycle. And second of all, we then have to mature them. Um, and I'm sure that there are people on the call and people aware of the work being done in stem cell biology where um, this observation has been known for some time that um, you can put in uh, immature um, um, uh, stem cell derived beta cells that will then mature in vivo after a period of time. And so it looks like this is also happening in the regenerative uh, um, uh, approach as well. And so um, we're excited about the crosstalk between those two, uh, two areas now, the regenerative and the replacement strategy. So I can stop my share there and, and have anybody ask away. That was fantastic. I mean, you really hit sort of uh, so many different, the high notes of what you've been doing, but also filled in the blanks with some granular details. That was um, an excellent um, short, but very informative presentation. Thank you so much. I wondered if um, if anyone from the audience is interested in asking uh, Rob some questions. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Okay, crickets, anybody? Christine? Hi, great talk, Rob. Um, I actually have two questions. One is a specific question about your sick two mice, mice and uh, whether they develop insulinomas or not, you know, because you've, you've altered that balance between proliferation and death and have you aged them out long enough? Do they develop tumors? Haven't aged them out long enough. Um, I suspect that that would be 
very rare. Um, and yeah, with the animals right now, or I think the oldest we've generated are nine months, haven't seen any problems yet, but they may need to go even longer. Okay. And then my other question was maybe a bit more of a much broader question, something maybe a bit more discussion-based. Um, what do you think the physiological significance is of beta cells going into a quiescent state? So why do they do this? I mean, they're so important to our bodies and obviously yeah. losing them, you end up with metabolic disease and diabetes. What is the benefit? Like there has to be some sort of physiological benefit to this. Have you thought about maybe comment on what that is? Sure. Um, so we've, we've thought a lot about that. Um, and I'll, I'll preface this very long winded answer you're about to get with, I'm not really sure what the answer is. Um, but this is my answer. Um, beta cells are neurons. And so they've evolved um, essentially the same way that neurons have and in, in primordial um, I call them primordial, but simpler um, animal um, models, for example, in Drosophila, um, the insulin producing cells are in the brain. And so there's 14 neurons. So I think someone counted them where they make insulin uh, insulin like peptides. And somehow in evolution, those have um, moved down into our gut, um, probably to be closer to where nutrients are being absorbed. So a little bit more efficient um, coupling to stimulus. So the, the reason why I think that uh, we we get a fixed number and we don't get any more is likely that um, imagine in early life, um, an animal running around with a, um, a beta cell that could continue to proliferate. I don't think it would make it to m maturity to the point where it would actually be able to um, have offspring and, and um, contribute to the genetic pool as it were because of this problem of insulinomas, inappropriate insulin secretion. Um, so my, my answer to that is the reason why we have beta cells that won't re-enter the cell cycle is because of the potential risk of having too many beta cells. So evolution didn't predict autoimmune disease though. Autoimmune disease is relatively new. Um, so now we have this problem of cells that have learned over millennia not to re-enter the cell cycle once you've got a fixed mass. Now we have to figure out how that's happening. So we think it's genetic and, and we think it's going to be targetable. Okay. Thank you. Sure. That's those are great um, points. Thank you, Christine, for asking those. I wondered um, if you might want to comment on this whole idea of senescence. Um, Anil uh, Bouchon and others are sort of talking a lot about senescence and that uh, maybe these cells are becoming senescence and that's and then they're not cleared and this is contributing to sort of islet dysfunction. Is there any way that you're, or that you envision, envision your work sort of dovetailing into this hypothesis? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was discussing this recently with um, Peter Thompson who uh, trained with uh, Anil. Um, and the, the key reason why, uh, Peter and I started talking about, it. he was, he was talking about his work on senescence and he mentioned P21 as one of the targets that's critical for, um, having cells enter into the senescent, uh, um, uh, pool. And P21 was the first target that we silenced that we saw, uh, beta cells going back to the cell cycle. And I'd never thought of P21 as regulating senescence. This is going back 10 or 12 years now. 
Um, so Peter and I have been discussing whether or not what we're actually doing is taking senescent cells and guessing, getting senescent cells to reverse that senescent process. Um, but sort of having granular idea as to the significance of that. Is it, are we, are we reversing senescent, uh, we're reversing senescence and getting proliferation of cells that went into senescence or into cellular quiescence. And so this becomes, I think, interesting for developing new ideas and potentially new targets for reversing that. Um, but also potentially for the translational benefit, if you're actually going after senescent cells, are there markers of senescence that we can silence and reverse versus quiescent cells that we would silence and reverse? So I think it's quite interesting and literally two weeks old from, uh, from the way we've been thinking about it. Yeah, it's great. I, yeah, we've had uh, both Peter Thompson and Anil on our podcast and they're both, uh, they have some really, really fresh ideas. I wondered also what you thought about, you know, uh, work from uh, Karsten Bouchard. He's over there in Sweden. You know, he's, um, there was sort of this one-off paper that came out uh, almost a year ago. Phenofibrate reduces uh, triglyceride and cholesterol in people. And then they, uh, it was used to sort of reverse type one diabetes in a 19 year old uh, woman. It also uh, prevents type one diabetes in nod mice by increasing sphingolipid, um, you know, uh, in islets and sphingolipid metabolism is abnormal in T1D. It just kind of came to me when you were talking about the fact that the GP um, R3 is likely a lipid receptor. I mean, could there be anything there that could be uh, connected? Sure, the, uh, the, the short answer in science to it, could there be anything there is always sure. Um, cause the, the typically we, we're, we're always, we're, we have a big dark void that we're, we're looking at in terms of problems and we're holding a tiny little light most of the time. So the answer to that question is always, yes, there could be, um, that we're, we're actively trying to find what the, um, agonist is for GPR3. Um, one of the interesting connections there to draw back to, um, not to type one, um, or people living with type one. But to the pregnancy question, it, is that agonist of GPR3, um, does that go up and down um, as uh, women become pregnant? And so, for example, does that agonist disappear during pregnancy? And if so, does that mean GPR3 no longer signals and the beta cells in the pregnant mother can actually re-enter the cell cycle? So there are, there are reasons to think that lipids could be um, doing some very interesting things to beta cells and beta cell mass, at least in the context of pregnancy. I'm not familiar with the study that you just mentioned, though. Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's it's kind of curious. It's a one-off study, but behind it, there's a um, a lot of work by Carson himself and his team. But so yeah, that's really interesting. The pregnancy um, the pregnancy issue also is uh, curious. I know down at University of Florida, Mark Atkinson and company are starting to look closely at um, the blood of pregnant women who have type 1 diabetes and to further understand what's the immune signature and, you know, what else is, you know, what else can they see from, from um, that, uh, those samples. I, I think that would be, you know, a really a, a wonderful collaboration and hopefully, um, and maybe, maybe you can join us. We are putting together 
um, a whole off the record on pregnancy, women in pregnancy and uh, what's happening and, and from different viewpoints, cells, genes, you know, um, immune system. We're gonna have a bunch of different scientists in the room talking about it so, totally off the record. So we'll have to, we'll give you a shout for that as well. That sounds terrific, thanks. Yeah, um, and then I guess the last thing, you know, you've got this, um, you know, you've got this big 100, uh, I guess you've got what, 140,000 plasmids um, in your back pocket there. I mean, if, when you talked about those and uh, were you really sort of shouting out to the community saying, you know, hey, if you, if someone is interested, we could help you or sure. is that just for your team? No, nope. happy to help. So the, the whole, one of the, one of the goals is, is to um, expand um, into other people's uh, pathways of interest. If they think that, you know, the, again, going back over a decade, the idea that um, performing RNAi screens to identify new targets has always been exciting, but really limited by the, the cell type in which you could do the screens. So classically we would do those screens and, HeLa cells or, or U2OS cells or, or 293 cells. And the reason why you would do that is because of the scale of the experiment required those cells. Um, you needed a sort of infinitely renewable amount of material. So the problem is you can't study insulin secretion in a HeLa cell. Yeah. You can't study why does a human beta cell do this versus do that um, in a 293 cell. So yeah, absolutely. The investment in making these screens possible was not just to do um, human beta cell screens, but to do literally any primary human um, cell type. So anyone who has a beta cell type question where they've identified a pathway or, or they have a target and they wanna know what genes around that might be regulating that target, we're happy to help. As long as you can uh, measure what you're looking for in a mic with a microscope, yeah. We're happy to help you. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll uh, talk offline about getting that onto our science uh, mar marketplace. We have Barack Bloom on there offering mice from Wisconsin, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll put you on there as well for partnerships right. and collaborations. I have a question from Niara Leite. Uh, yeah. do, do you have an idea what is the percentage of beta cells that need uh, to pr uh, proliferate to restore glycemic control in T1D? Uh, short answer, no. Um, I'm not sure that anyone knows that. Um, I bet people, very smart people could estimate that on the basis of um, likely animal modeling, but measuring mass is challenging. So there are some really exciting new imaging approaches, non-invasive imaging approaches to measuring mass. Um, but in people, I don't think that's I don't think that's close. We could ask we could ask um, our clinical our colleagues if they if they know the answer to that. Um, but yeah, the percentage of beta cells to proliferate. So I would I would argue that it's we need to get them to proliferate, and then we need those I would anticipate fetal like proliferating cells to um, mature their likely mitochondrial um, metabolism and become glucose sensing. Um, so it would be that two-step process that I mentioned of not just um, getting them to proliferate, but also then getting them to mature. Um, short answer, no, <laughs> I don't know the percentage you'd need. You gotta get them to grow up and do their job. 
Um, and how about from Jeming Liu? Hi, this is a fantastic talk. Totally agree. Could you comment how alpha cells behave when beta cells are induced to be proliferative? Are alpha cells proliferative or not? She doesn't have a mic, so thank you. No mic here. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So this, um, we tend to, and when I say we, I'll speak personally, I tend to forget about all the other islet cells and only talk about beta cells. And um, that's not uh, very smart. Um, so uh, the idea is how do the alpha cells behave? We've, we've looked at alpha cell proliferation, not in vivo, but um, ex vivo. So whenever we find a target, um, we ask, does this target regulate endocrine cell proliferation or is it only beta cell or only alpha? Um, we, in, the, in mice, we don't, um, we don't expect to see alpha cell proliferation if it's a cell intrinsic effect of overexpressing SIC2, for example, because we're only expressing SIC2 in beta cells. But formally, uh, I think your question is asking, could we anticipate a change in alpha cell proliferative behavior if we've affected beta cell proliferative behavior? Um, and again, like my answer to Monica earlier, the answer is always could be. Um, I don't think we would see that change. I certainly would expect if we have more amino acid sensing proliferative beta cells that when the animals feed, those animals are going to be secreting a lot more insulin and that would likely have paracrine effects on alpha cell um, uh, glucagon secretion, for example. So yes, that crosstalk for sure is going to be affected. Um, how to measure it in vivo um, is something for the future. Yeah, no, that's a really good answer um, to both those questions. I think, um, yeah, I, I, does anyone else have any more questions or any more comments? Okay, well, um, thank you again, Rob. This was fantastic. We, we're, we're very appreciative of your time. And thanks everyone else for joining us. Our mission is to connect scientists in type one diabetes and related research fields, enable, enable their collaboration through our website, our internet, our event, events, and hopefully accelerate research through these um, connections. So thanks again, really appreciate your joining us. Thanks very much for setting it up. And if anyone has any further questions or wants to follow up, just uh, find my email online and uh, happy to answer anything. Will do. Have a great rest right. of your day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care.